So what's the scalability problem? It's that it's that there are edge cases we run into that require literal engineers to intervene in deploying our service to the customer. So here's a good example. You know, part of what PropPerfect needs to do is fill in test data, right? So like when we're building this test into a test environment, the data set there is radically different from it than it is on production. So like that test data needs to get filled in through guess and check process because like we don't even know how they set up their test data environment. It's crazy. Like there's a reason nobody else is doing this because the deeper you get into it, the more you're like, these people are nuts for even trying. And we are. I'm Eric Fogg, co-founder and COO of ProdPerfect. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Eric Fogg is helping revolutionize software testing powered by your customers. All this and more on Code Story. Eric Fogg attended MIT, but failed his intro to computer science classes. It was at that point that he punted over to mechanical engineering. So as you could guess, Eric is not the tech guy, but he does know enough to be dangerous. He loves to work with his hands and has a professional history in solving old problems in new ways. Speaking of working with his hands, he likes to create Comic-Con gear. At the time of recording this podcast, he had a Captain America shield made out of an old satellite in his office. He's also a huge comic book and sports card collector and actually mentors several startups involved in pricing and liquidity around collectibles. Outside of that, he hosts a podcast around the topic of politics, polarization, and tribalism. In early 2018, Eric's co-founder started working through the traditional problems of QA testing. After getting fed up with it, he decided that he just needed to build his own solution and needed someone to help him turn it into a business. Eric joined the team and has been changing the QA testing landscape ever since. This is the creation story of Prod Perfect. What Prod Perfect does is, is we autonomously build, maintain, and evolve end-to-end test suites for web applications by analyzing traffic from production, right? So normally to build a test suite, to build an end-to-end test suite, a browser test suite, you hire QA engineers and they look at an Excel sheet that has like a bunch of requirements and they write these tests by hand. And this is a like terrible use of human time. Machines can do this pretty well because we can look at what users are doing on the application and say, well, let's just test and make sure they can do that, right? Let's see what they're doing, make sure they can do what they're doing, build tests that reflect that. And you can run those tests in your test environment long before your code goes to production to make sure you haven't broken anything important to your users. I wanna skip the sales pitch about it, you know, I think we're gonna, over the next 10 years, radically shift what portion of humans in the software world spend their time testing versus like creating products, which is what they wanna do. So it's it's a lot like infrastructure as a service or other things that automated away a job function and, and freed people up to do more interesting stuff. So Dan came up with this idea because he was a director of engineering at a company called WeSpire. The very classic story, like QA is the bane of his existence. A number of companies have like gotten into the QA space recently, going at solving this problem in a different way, but it's a it's a big, gnarly, super unsexy space that everyone has to deal with that's very expensive. 
And Dan had this flash of insight where he was sitting there trying to like wrangle Hotjar to give him the data he needed to tell his QA engineers what tests to write. And he said, I just need to build this myself. So I got involved because back at a hardware startup called Helmet Hub, we were making helmet vending machines for bike share, which was doomed from the start, right? Like one of those like, why not things actually got funded, which is cool, learned a lot from it. But I hired Dan as my lead software engineer. And he and I became best friends because we've been talking about, he's an engineer with some interest in politics and I'm probably a politician with some interest in engineering. And he and I are still talking about, can we create good AI for citizens, for government that can help us deal with an increasingly complex and noisy world, right? And and misinformation rich world. We'd still want to get into that space someday, but we'd been talking about it for seven years. And Dan had this idea and he said, Eric, you know, I need, I need your help. Dan is an engineer's engineer. And from my consulting days, I like learned to fall in love with people and talk to them. And so he said, like, I need your help, you know, kind of turning this into a business. And it's been a, that was early 2018. It's been a ton of fun. So tell me about the MVP. You know, tell me about that first product you built, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. I love telling the story and I don't get too much because we turned the concept of the MVP on its head. And it was like, it was crazy. A lot of investors walked away because they thought it was the exact opposite way of the way we should have done it. But we didn't know better. We didn't know we weren't allowed to do it. So we did it anyway. And what we did was, you know, normally an MVP is it's minimum viable from the perspective of value to the customer, right? So like, what is the smallest thing that someone will actually pay for? And then we're going to add value to it. And we realized we were actually trying to come up with that. What we realized was, you know, again, this is like custom code for a web application, right? Every, like the thing that people want to buy from us is these end-to-end test scripts that for 20 years, everyone has said, this is custom code. We have to hire engineers to do it. And they have to understand the application intimately. And for us to have any foot in the door, we had to be able to provide that full experience. We had to be able to set me up to be able to say, like, if you pay us a check every month, you just don't have to worry about end-to-end testing. Let us do it. You don't have to tell us anything. You don't have to inform. You know, this data allows us to know that we're running a great test suite and we actually have good metrics against it. You know, basically, don't you worry about testing. Let me worry about testing. And so it meant that what we had to do was say, what's the minimum amount of technology that we can insert into this thing in order to be able to provide the full service? And we'll fill in the rest with burning the midnight oil. And those were our first customers where we were essentially a consulting shop with some technology masquerading as a product. Everyone knew this, that was buying it and they were okay with it. They understood, right? Our first customers were all startups. And if Dan and I were getting paid at the time, which we were not, we would have been hemorrhaging money servicing them, right? Our economics were negative, deeply negative, and that's okay. And that for us was the minimum viable product. It was the whole value, but the minimum technology and and we filled in the rest with people. So a lot of our stack was was like smart engineers and me, I had to learn about end-to-end testing. It was hard. Somehow I can't write code. I'm even good with foreign languages and music and I can't write code. Don't know why. But so what was the stack we used? We used Keen. So Keen.io as our data collector. Um, We forked it. So we built our own version of it that we maintained. That's what we plug into production. We had to modify it heavily to not collect any PII. So we block a lot of stuff in order to like, you know, be able to work with a bank or something. 
We built our entire backend on AWS. So we use AWS pipeline. We use a Lambda to drop some stuff and filter some stuff. And then the data sits in an S3 bucket. And in AWS, what we built initially is the analysis engine. And this is where this is where we have like cool proprietary tech step one. Um, we used, uh, everything's in JavaScript or Python, but the backend is Python pandas. And we threw a bunch of like data scientists to do their kind of like weird arcane, almost Lovecraftian art to figuring out how to turn like a big mess of data into patterns reliably and automatically. That code will still like, drive you insane if you stare at it too long, but it works and, and we're actually refactoring and replacing it. But the early part was just this, this analysis engine that was a bunch of scripts and Keen and an AWS pipeline. And then we were writing the scripts by hand initially in Test Cafe, which is another open source framework, much like Selenium for running these tests. That was like the early thing. And the only magic we had was having a decent idea of what the tests should be. And we'll just write them ourselves. So you started with a pretty unconstrained model, minimal technology, but let's dive into some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make, even in that minimal technology, and perhaps we'll say the minimal engineer stack, you know, sort of decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the short term and how you cope with those. And, you know, I'm think, thinking like technical debt, feature cut, software minimization. I'm sure there's a lot that went into that. So tell me about some of those. The biggest constraint for us was uh, manpower, right? Because we had no money. <laughs> so we had this, I remember drawing it out on a whiteboard and it was in my house. Like I just happened to get a whiteboard from Craigslist. I remember drawing out like, what are our constraints? Well, there's, you know, we can constrain the number of customers. We can constrain the number of engineers that are working because they're going to become a bottleneck. But the biggest decision we had to make early on regarding the technology itself was we had to really fiercely to customers say no constantly regarding features that they wanted. A couple examples of stuff we have now is that customers wanted to be able to see and understand the test suite. We were like, well, you can look at the code. They're like, I want to understand. I don't want to have to look through the code. I want to understand these test cases. Like normally they're written out like this in Excel. And we just had to say, no, like we just don't have time for that because what we're desperately, desperately trying to do is make sure that the analysis engine can actually, again, autonomously pop out test cases. Um, it was our entire exclusive focus early on. And so we ignored script auto generation. We were like, we're just gonna write the scripts by hand, deal with it. I don't have time to do this. I'm working on the analysis engine during the day. Fine, do it at night, right? You joined a you joined a pre-seed startup, deal with it. And again, I'm not allowed near code, but I did a lot of um, I did a lot of other stuff in in like recording videos and such and figuring out test data to help set up the engineers to actually write the code faster. So our entire focus is on the analysis engine until it was stable. The other thing we had to do was scale test construction. And so the thing we started writing then in JavaScript was this essentially like this translator between what pops out of the analysis engine and JavaScript code that runs in Test Cafe into this thing to, to like, you know, take these events that we see. Um, and it wasn't hard, it just took time. You know, we see a click, we see a form fill and say, okay, we saw that and it's in our test case now. Let's just turn that into instead of I'm seeing a click or a form fill to Test Cafe, please execute this click or form fill. That was our exclusive focus second. And so what this meant was like, there was no customer experience. There was no web application. There was just this like magic black box that we like didn't want to talk about too much where we said, look, just pay us and test code will pop out. And because of that like huge trust gap, because there, again, there's no visibility, there's no web application, there's nothing to log into. You just have to like look into this 
automatically generated code that you can't understand and you better hope it worked. The other constraint for us was our sales motion. So these days, like we just sell a contract and someone's like, oh, I want a free trial. We go, no, you don't get a free trial. You buy the contract. We couldn't do that back then. So we were like hustling this stuff for free and doing these risk-free months. This is where like my specialty came in was like, how can I sit with someone and get them to agree to try this? And how can we decide, how are we gonna like know that it's successful? You know, that got us our first five customers that like, you know, scrapping our way through everything, you know, classic, classic story, got us our first five customers and therefore our first major investment. So you got the product, you got your first five customers. I assume as they start using the product, they're, they're giving you mounds of feedback. So how did you progress the product from that point? How did you go about building your roadmap? And, and I'm really interested in how you decided that this is the next most important thing to build. So Dan Whiting, our CEO, here's who he is. If Henry Ford and Tim Cook had a baby and that baby actually went to empathy school, you'd have Dan Whiting. I guess the other way of thinking about it is if you've seen like a beautiful mind where at some point John Nash is like staring and all the math is like flying across his face, you know, in the hangover, they spoofed this with the poker or the blackjack scene. Dan has this very broad vision of what this thing needs to become in order to be like a truly enterprise ready product that we can sell for millions of dollars a year and like truly take over the world, right? And just and just like, be, you know, become the, the big kraken. He's laser focused on it. He is our head of product, you know, even this far in, he still, he still leads it. So why Tim Cook and Henry Ford? Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And Tim Cook, of course, famously, you know, just said, look, people don't know what they want. We're going to we're going to give them something they don't know they want yet. And they'll want it. Um, sorry, not Tim Cook, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs. And so and so what's interesting is, is for a long time, we straight up ignored customer feedback. We did not care. I mean, we listened, but we said this is not impacting our roadmap at all, because what we need to do is build something that because like we've already made this promise that we can't scale, right? We can we can reliably make this is this is like because of that upside down MVP. You know, we can't scale this to more than 20 customers right now and we need to. The promise is already gargantuan. Again, if you think about our, you know, I feel a little bad saying we ignored customer feedback, but if you think about the the this like upside down MVP rather than like, hey, here's a little taste of something like what else would be useful? It is Again, like we're trying to replace the need for you to hire a QA automation engineering team. And we're, so far we're successful. So like good enough, right? If you're gonna, if you're not gonna fire us, I don't care because I need more customers and I need this to scale and I need to be reliable and I need it to not fall apart if one of the engineers takes a sick day. It was brutal because I was also a customer success, right? Because our sales and customer success team was one, it was me. And so I just had to listen to folks be like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. We'll totally add it to our roadmap at some point. And they're like, when's it gonna be ready? I was like, I have no idea. You're just gonna have to deal with it. But what we were already providing was so much better than what they were looking at, which is, well, we could shut down Prod Perfect and then we could go like on a job hunt for, or not a job hunt, but a recruiting hunt for some Q automation engineers. So that'll take a few months and then they'll ramp for six months and then hopefully it'll work out. And right now we're not shipping app breaking bugs. So let's just, let's just roll with it, right? QA is one of those things that is about like satisfaction as opposed to like your moonshot, right? There are all sorts of products that are like, that are about aspiration, right? Especially revenue related products. But for us, it's about satisfaction. We were satisfying people, it was good enough. They had all sorts of gripes about it. We ignored it until 
two and a half years in, we'd raised our Series A. We were able to seriously, sorry, two years in, we raised our Series A. We were able to seriously invest in an engineering team. And oh my gosh, someone who knows anything about product from a SaaS and web application perspective. And we built mission control. That's where we started putting customer requests into features, but we'd had such a huge backlog of them that we were like, we have all sorts of great ideas. So they did eventually make it to the roadmap. It just took years. Well, let's let's take a step into what you said. So how did you build your team? And you know, I'm, I'm interested in what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. I think one of ProdPerfect's major, major advantages is talent. It's something that we are shockingly good at in a way that I can't truly articulate why, but we've been so consistent about getting great talent that I don't think it's luck anymore. Like some of our secret sauce is that as leaders, we like actually super duper seriously care about people and their success and it's obvious. And that means that when we interview people who we know are talented, which like that part I'll get to in a second, what's what's actually even harder than finding good talent is convincing good talent to join you. That's where most people, like most of the founders that I talk to fall apart. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we, we gave offers, but like they joined Amazon instead because Amazon's offering them $300,000. We don't have that kind of money. And so I think the real secret is, is in truly caring about someone's success and well-being. So like if there's one thing you can take away from this in your recruiting strategy, it's like have a founder right? Like get off your butt and go talk to this person during the interview process and sell prod perfect the way you would sell it to an investor, because this person is investing far more than a VC is. A VC is investing a tiny chunk of someone else's money, right? Someone joining your company is investing a huge chunk of their time, which is the only thing they have a limit of, right? They're going to die soon. All of us are. And so you're asking so much of this person, like you owe it to them to sit down and say, how is joining Prod Perfect going to help your career? How is it going to like, like what is your mission in life? What do you want to do? And can we align those things? And like, can we write that down in a way that we can hold ourselves accountable to? It's, it's, it works really well for us in part because we actually follow through with it. So our retention is incredible. How do we find good people? We're big poachers. And uh, I've gotten some calls from chief revenue officers before, because even during the pandemic, the best people are not unemployed. If you have 20% unemployment, the best 80% of people are still employed, you know, in the tech, like let's say in the tech world. And so we have to go poaching. And so we typically look for, we do a lot of networking. We'll look for people where people we know have relationships that can speak well for them. And then the two steps we go through to test them are one, we always do some sort of live exercise. So like for sales, it's role playing, right? Like sell me something and I'm going to pretend to be a cranky engineer who hates talking to salespeople because that's most engineers. If at all possible, especially for a senior role, we do some contract work. We say, look, we're asking you to make a major investment. You should want to get to know us better as well. Let's do some work together. Let's see if it's going to work out really well. Um, and people are actually quite receptive to that. And, you know, you know, the adage, hire slow, fire fast, we really do hire slow. And sometimes it's very painful. And sometimes our team is screaming for individuals. But like the last thing we want to do is like stick a body in the slot just to fill it and then regret it later. I've done that once. I will never do it again. It's interesting. I really like the way you, you put that. Talk to them like they're an investor because they are investing in your company. It makes a ton of sense. And they are. They're investing themselves. They're investing their time and they're expecting a return. So it's a, it's a joint, it's a joint thing. 
Exactly. We literally use the same pitch deck that we use for investors when we want to give an offer. We go like, hey, this is where PropPerfect's going, right? This is what we've done so far. These are the challenges ahead of us. This is what we need to figure out, right? So when we, you go to an investor, you say, here are the challenges we're going to solve with your money. I say, here are the challenges we're going to solve with your time and why that's going to turn the equity that you have in this company. We're, we're, we like to be heavy on equity. We don't want to clutch our pearls about that. So like this equity that you're getting, you're a shareholder. Right. And here's how you're going to turn your, you know, especially this early, like everyone knows like, oh my gosh, the 23rd person to work at Amazon is rich. We don't know their name, but they're loaded. And so, so we want people thinking the same way about working with us. And so that investment, that investment of my time pays off massively. Let's switch to scalability for a minute. So was Prod Perfect built to scale efficiently from day one? Or were you fighting this as you grew? And I think I know where you're going to go, but but tell me about that. Dig into that. <laughs> it was so not scalable. It was possibly the least scalable piece of technology built in the last 10 years, despite being on AWS already, despite being serverless. It was, it was so not, it, I mean, again, it was probably 80% of the value we were providing to our customers was being done by hand by humans bespoke and custom to each of them on day one it was miserable and we were actually what's interesting is we we're transparent about this with our investors right this is why you asked me about it i was like oh yeah the upside down mvp like we've already conceptualized that for investors and and we needed an investor who's like willing to get behind it and see how big the opportunity was with all these challenges to be frank, we're still not as scalable as we want to be. We have fewer than 100 customers right now. Now, those those customers pay very big tickets for us because we're an alternative to high talent, expensive headcount. So we make a lot of money. You know, our sales are still like very one to one, very consultative. We spend a lot of time making sure that it's a good fit because um, we don't want a bad fit and because it's expensive for us. The technology is still not all that scalable in part because I'm going to sort of like let you in on a little secret here. So the whole world is now going to know any machine intelligence problem has a long tail of thorny edge cases, right? This is why you can't have self-driving cars on the highway right now, because like people will die and a small portion of them. Well, and, and one of the hard things about technology versus humans, and this is true for us as well, right? Like we accept a certain number of people behind the wheel, killing themselves and each other. But like, as soon as a robot does it, we're gonna lose our minds. And it's the same thing with Prod Perfect, where like your QA engineer makes a mistake. Everyone's like, oh, but it's Mike. And we like Mike. And like, Mike will go fix it. Cause Mike, we know Mike cares about the company, all this good stuff. Whereas if we screw up, it's like we're a vendor and not only a vendor, but a piece of software. And so all of a sudden there's huge trust issues. So what's the scalability problem? It's that, it's that there are edge cases we run into that require literal engineers to intervene in deploying our service to the customer. So here's a good example. You know, part of what PropPerfect needs to do is fill in test data, right? So like when we're building this test into a test environment, the data set there is radically different from it than it is on production. So like that test data needs to get filled in through guess and check process, because like we don't even know how they set up their test data environment. It's crazy. Like there's a reason nobody else is doing this because the deeper you get into it, the more you're like, these people are nuts for even trying. And we are but you gotta fill in this test data. So like a good example is like, let's say Geico is a customer. At some point you need to fill in a VIN in order to, you know, vehicle identification number to get a quote, right? Cause they wanna know what car you have. Well, if the machine who that's trying to fill in the data has never seen a VIN before, it's gonna fill in like some alphanumeric sequence that won't work. And so that gets punted up, you know, it fails, it gets punted up and someone has to go Google like, okay, what's a good syntax for a VIN? Great, I'll fill it in. Luckily now the machine is being taught 
then there's more complex stuff like we have a you know we have a customer that uploads and analyzes CAD files and so like we definitely need a human to intervene with that the the edge cases get like way thornier and more complicated than that but those are like two accessible ones so we still need engineers overseeing this thing so you imagine this like operating engineer core who's sitting there essentially running this factory that's breaking all the time and like stuff is getting punted up to them where they need to go like creatively solve problems and do it in a way such that it creates a data set for the machine to learn. So it's like still not scalable infinitely in the way that a SaaS application should be, you know, where like the only place it's gonna fall down is cause like the database got too big or something, or like they didn't, you know, set up their AWS to scale the right way. We still have a core of engineers that has to grow with our customer base. The thing that we need to do is move our way down that long tail by automating how to deal with like different styles of challenges for this analysis engine or for the, the code generator to produce test code. What we want is fewer and fewer of these problems per customer so that our customer base can scale non-linearly compared to the engineer core. There is some day in the future that we will not need operation engineers to maintain our customers and our customers like test suites and update those test suites, but it's probably a long way away. So scalability is always gonna be, or will be a challenge for ProdPerfect for years. Describing as like the thorny edge cases, it's a good picture to think of when you think about QA testing, period, right? Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, what are you most proud of? You know, I'm, I'm a very people-y person, so I'll, I'll give the real answer and then I'll give like the, the product answer because um, I'm proud of both. But the thing I'm most proud of is I have seen in a very short time period, you know, somewhere between, you know, the, the, some of these hires that been around for six months, but I think the longest hire we've had is two and a half years. The one after that is two. And I have seen some like young, ambitious people who were like looking for their shot. You know, they're in their like mid late 20s and they're looking for their opportunity for like for a leadership team that supports them and also gets the heck out of the way, lets them make mistakes, lets them take take risks, rewards them for taking initiative rather than being control freaks. These folks were looking to take that shot and and thereby like advance their career and advance their, you know, advance their their salary but like most importantly grow as individuals and become, you know, like move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and see themselves develop. And we finally did performance reviews for the like formal performance reviews for the first time. And so we had this moment where we got to reflect on how far so many of us have come as humans. People are really proud of themselves for what they've done and, and who they've become here. That's what I'm most proud of is, is seeing that growth. But looking at the product, I think the thing that we're most proud of is it's, it's of course, it's customer feedback. Like we get unsolicited because uh, we're like in Slack channels with our customers too, because we of those thorny edge cases. So we like develop real relationships with these folks. And so I, so I guess this is also a people thing. Those moments I'm most proud of, and we collate these quotes, of course, is when people say, holy smokes, like you saved our bacon or like, wow, our SDLC has transformed and we're able to do so much more than we were able to before. Or, you know, or like my life used to be very frustrating um, and now it's very enjoyable thanks to buying your product. You know, the stuff that's like a little bit, it's a little bit basic or like generic, but when people just come out of the woodwork and say that, that like we've actually had an impact, not just on their bottom lines, but their lives, that's special. There's something about when someone purchases your product and, and they feel their lives are better for having done so, um, or like people get promoted for having done so, that's special. <laughs>
Well, let's flip the script to a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. We love mistakes um, uh, because it means we're moving fast, right? Like we're still in like Mark Zuckerberg 2011, move fast and break things mode, which is hard when you're a QA company, right? So we contain and constrain what we break. So spoiler, we still have one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world as a customer. When we got started with them, you know, this, like we're putting a piece of code on their application that collects data, lots of well-justified paranoia. So we have to go through these like hardcore security reviews and tests, like performance and load tests, lots of data coming back. It took four months just to get through that. And we pass and we're like, oh, we're in. And we even like go through a two week trial with them where we catch a number of like key bugs. We're like, oh my God, we're in, let's do this. And we end up promoting our tracker to production and then shipping an update to the tracker that breaks their site. When you go to their site, it's a white blank thing. And it was because of us. We had like literally just raised money on this deal. I thought I was gonna die. I thought, you know, I was like, you know, the Japanese have a, have a grand Bushido tradition of going out with honor and maybe it's my time. And we, we got the phone call in, like in the middle of the night, which means I didn't pick it up, of course, because I'm a millennial, but there were like six messages on my phone. The way we resolved that mistake was we had to, we went back to our champion, you know, we took this, they, they took the snippet down. We had to go through another few months process of getting that thing back online. And the way that we got through it was we went back to the champion and like, yes, we did our apologies and groveling, but the thing that people really want from you, whether it's like a customer or a boss or, you know, a spouse is they want to know how you're going to make sure that that doesn't happen again, right? People are looking for like reliability. And it actually, what it did was it caused us to get so tight. You know, again, we went for, like we transformed really fast from cowboy to, to, to real deal with the code we're injecting on someone's application, you know, including like having a promotion strategy and canary builds and applications that are like, that we literally will pay them if we break their site. Like they're just there to be a, a test bed. And the rigor that we put into making sure that thing worked really leveled up our entire tech, tech development process. And we use, you know, we don't always use that level of rigor with all the tech that we ship, but we always have the option to, and we now always have the choice. And so it's made us better. And so by working with, working with this champion who really truly needed what we had, we managed to get back into the good graces and they're still our biggest contract today. It's the worst feeling in the world. Um, and because the thing is like, at the time you don't know how it's going to turn out. So like looking back, you're like, oh yeah, it was great that it happened. And it was, but boy, was it scary. What does the future look like for your product and for your team? We are in growth mode right now. So we're on the war path to fundraising sometime in 2022. We're growing right now. We're expanding primarily the sales team. You know, I'll just plug, we're looking for like great consultative technology salespeople who like engineers don't hate and can, can show us that, that they don't. And so that growth is, is happening right now. And the thing that's happening to the product, which is what, which is what we're really here to talk about is ProdPerfect is finally rolling out those features that don't just like make end-to-end -end testing work autonomously, but make the, but, but help our customers, you know, when a test breaks, be able to take action much faster, much more easily. ProdPerfect is finally becoming a truly like continuous testing tool set um, or service really. 
And, and so, you know, we're working with customers like to move us earlier in the SDLC, run us more frequently and thereby, you know, make, you know, kind of like for, for all those tech leaders out there who are like, ah, yes, we have like a three week, you know, development cycle and a one week QA cycle. What we're trying to do is like become a tool that, or become a service that they can just flip on and it allows them to translate that, you know, kind of slow agile process into continuous development. And those, those features are all like on the front end. The other thing that we're doing is we're finally getting like super serious about machine learning and that's solving the scalability problem. Um, so we've been training data sets. We've been doing a lot of R&D on machine learning and doing a lot of stuff that like very basic training, but not like your your true like neural net kinds of models. And we finally hired some like really, really smart people to help us or to, to develop that and lead that um, and radically transform our scalability and automatability. So those are the big changes that are happening for the product. And, you know, eventually what's going to happen is we're going to move out of like out of just web functional end-to-end -end testing into visual testing and load testing and performance testing and mobile testing. So the plan is to become like this, again, this big like octopus that eats the world where people are going to look back like what is PropPerfect going to be in five years? PropPerfect is going to do to QA testing what New Relic did to performance analysts. New Relic was so good at killing the performance analyst role that like people don't even like you say performance analysts, people are like, what are you even talking about? Like they forget that it existed. Or similarly, like what AWS did to the IT department. Um, like other than like edge IT, like your laptop, like there isn't an, like people don't maintain bare metal server. Not around here. Like I live in Silicon Valley, not around here. And so that's the future of Prod Perfect is is be is that like QA as a service will be like platform as a service, infrastructure as a service, performance monitoring as a service and radically change how people develop products once again um, in a way that I think is, is going to have a huge impact on, you know, the broader software industry, which is, you know, almost pretty much every company now. Let's switch to you, Eric. So who influences the way that you work? Name a no, I'm CEO, CTO, architect, really, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. Diana Klemp. So probably a name that most of your audience hasn't heard of. Um, she's the author, she's, she's the CEO of the Conscious Leadership Group. She's the lead author of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. So, you know, not being, not being the tech genius, there's only so much that, that great tech influencers influence me. But I really do think like tech leaders are people leaders, which, which is obvious, but I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how to get people to be good at tech, you know, as leaders. And we, we don't invest enough time from what I've seen in as leaders, like helping people thrive and do their best work. You know, everyone's looking for that 10X engineer. And like, we kind of recruit these folks, you know, recruit hoping that we're going to find someone who's like intrinsically motivated to be a 10X engineer all the time. But if we just pay them enough money, right, they'll be a great 10X engineer and transform our business. But I really do believe that the environment that we create and the culture that we create in our engineering teams, we can one, do it deliberately, and two, culture eats pretty much everything else for breakfast, right? It eats strategy for breakfast, it eats tactics for breakfast, it eats process for breakfast. Because culture is, you know, because like 95% of the time, unless you have way too many meetings, your engineer is sitting there either in front of a computer or they're collaborating on, on a problem. Like their brain is either engaged in this really creative way where they're like having fun and enjoying themselves and excited and motivated um, and ambitious, or like they are just trying to get through the day and like do what it takes to keep their job and keep their paycheck. And then like go think about something else because there's something else that like, because there's something else that brings them so much more joy. 
And you really want the former and not the latter. It makes a, it is impossible to measure, it is intangible, but it makes a massive difference. And one of the ways that you can measure it is all these lagging indicators such as retention and, you know, and you can take surveys about morale and how people are feeling. But Diana Clamp's 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, it's a tough book and the way she runs her organization is like, you know, she, she eats the dog free. So, so it's a good model of how she's influenced me is what she wrote down. But it's, it's a tough, deeply introspective book. A lot of people don't like it, but I found that it's made me and Dan much better leaders that people want to work with and want to do right by um, and want to like share their like hard feedback with. They like want to make the company and the culture a better place because of who we've chosen to become. So we talked about, you know, a mistake but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? One thing we would have done differently is I think we would have, what we what we did was we let ourselves get caught up when we were fundraising in um, just focusing on ARR, ARR, ARR. You know, I talked about the scalability problem, right? I've got some scars from it. We were bringing on customers faster than we could actually onboard them in this early stage and it ended up biting us really, really, really hard. We had to let some customers go and it was terrible expectation management with our investors. And so like people really want our product, but we got ahead of, you know, the term is ahead of your skis. And we had a feeling about this, but we let ourselves get caught up in this like grow revenue now as fast as possible a year into building you know, the one of the more absurdly difficult tech companies that has been built in the last 10 years. It was the wrong move. Like we should have had the conviction or we should have stuck to our conviction with our investors that look, this is a big, hard problem. And like the thing that we're selling right now is a tiny slice of the opportunity. What we need to do is like use these customers to prove and learn and develop and make them thrilled. It is not time for us to go into 30% month over month growth mode, but we didn't do that. So we went to 30% month over month paper growth mode. People really, really, really want what we have. They love the vision of it. And back in 2019, it wasn't ready for that. And I wish we had stuck to our guns. Um, and so we've radically changed how we think about how we think about fundraising and what kind of conversations we're going to have either with our current investors who, who might just fund our next round because we're doing great right now, or we've been doing great for, for a good chunk. You know, or if we decide to get our next round from someone else. What I think every founder of a technology company should do is like be really, really clear on like what is the vision of this product and how is it going to transform? Like, can you imagine if Jeff Bezos had looked for funding now and all he said was like, yeah, I want to create an online bookstore, right? Like it's very, very different when he says, we're going to use that online bookstore to like go do all these other things. That are, that are each worth a hundred times as much as the online bookstore. And so like, don't even worry about the sales of the online bookstore. Like it's an excuse to have the technology out there. And, and having that conviction is hard because investors get really excited about revenue now. But if that's not your path, if your path isn't like, oh, this is a really simple spreadsheet application and like, it's a race to the front, like who's the first, you know, Carta or, um, you know, JustWorks is something like that, where like it's a relatively simple piece of technology that has a lot of potential to solve a lot of problems, but what it needs to do is like be the first out there and just like win the market, right? That's one model of a startup, but it doesn't have to be your model and you don't have to like pretend it's the one you're on if it's not the one you're on. Like if what you're building is a online bookstore in order to go build AWS 
you know, and, and Amazon Go and, uh, you know, the largest e-com retailer in the world, then say that and say, don't worry about the effing book sales this year. Well, last question, Eric. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I wish someone had to- so I wish someone had told me this. It's hard to do, but don't be intimidated by investors or by anyone giving you advice. Here's why. Especially if you're young, like you've just come out of school recently, or like you're, you know, you, you've been an IC, an individual contributor, there's this sense you have that there are these people who are senior to you and that they have all the answers, right? Like your teachers have all the answers, presumably. And when you go like give an oral exam, if they don't like your answers, you're wrong and too bad and you get a bad grade. Whereas when you're pitching a product either to a customer, right? So have this conviction in sales, have this conviction in recruiting, have this conviction in investing, when someone asks the wrong question, like you need to tell them it's the wrong question. So like a good example is, you know, I'm mentoring someone right now who is in the similar position we were early on where their economics are negative in their first five customers, but who cares? You know, they say, how do I handle the what are your economics questions six months in? Well, you say economics are not what you should be talking about six months in, investor, right? Because like investors, like it's not that they're lazy, it's that they're pattern matchers. So like, they're like, oh, I ask this question a lot. It's like, but this is, you know, you need to have the conviction, like this isn't the time to talk economics. Let's talk what the economics can be, but the economics today are irrelevant for your investment decision, right? Because we're not gonna scale much revenue on the product as it is right now, because I built it in a garage at night, right? But how's this thing gonna scale? Let's talk about that. Same thing with a customer, when they go like, well, why doesn't it have such and such a feature? It's like, because it doesn't need such and such a feature to solve your problem. So having the conviction that like, you know, you're right, you know, you need to listen, but when you know you're right, you're right. Even when you're wrong, but you're still right. You need to stick to your guns and not be a leaf in the wind for customers, for investors, for anyone. Like it is the people who, you know, you've got to be nimble, but you've got to be nimble to your own convictions, not other people's convictions. And you need to be willing to tell people no, that they're wrong, that they're asking the wrong questions, all this stuff. And it's hard. It's so hard, especially because investors seem like the teacher. It seems like you're supposed to have the answer. If they ask about your economics, you're like, oh gosh, I don't have a good economics answer. You have to let that go and be willing to know that you know more about your business and your industry and your customer and your technology and your problem than anyone else on earth. And that when anyone asks you a dumb question about it, you just need to let them know. That's great advice. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Prod Perfect. Noah, thanks so much. Love your show. And, you know, can't wait for your next episode. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.